Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, I invite you to turn to uh, Jeremiah chapter 20, or excuse me, Jeremiah chapter 16, Jeremiah chapter 16, and as you're uh, uh, flipping your Bibles to that, uh, to that text, I do want to bring you uh, greetings from the saints at Fort Knox, Kentucky. Um, it is a great, a great privilege for me to be able uh, to be there on your behalf at your commission um, to serve the saints there. Uh, I'm happy to report there are still many Christians in the United States Army and who love Jesus and who have put their faith in, his, in, the, in the Son of God. So I um, uh, also want to bring you greetings on behalf of my family, uh, my wife Trella, my daughters uh, Meredith and Macy. Um, they wish they could be here. Uh, we did talk about having them come along. Uh, but it just didn't uh, just didn't work out this time because I have some uh, follow-on duty in um, in South Carolina uh, beginning um, beginning on Monday. Uh, so with that said, I just want to say what a joy it is to be with you. This is um, for Trell and I, Meredith and Macy, definitely our spiritual home, and uh, it is a it is a joy to serve on your behalf um, in in the U.S. Army currently. At Fort Knox, we're scheduled to do what we call PCS. There's a lot of acronyms in the Army, if you're not familiar with that. PCS means a permanent change of station. And so we'll find out probably the end of the year, beginning of the FY20, or uh, calendar year 24, uh, where we're headed next uh, in, God's, in God's providence. So we appreciate your prayers as we move along uh, with that process. I trust you found Jeremiah 16, uh, and so I'd like to read uh, verses 14 through 21 for us this morning, and then also uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 uh, through 22, after we're done in Jeremiah. Brothers and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the word of our God. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, As the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country, and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain. And every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me. Nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first, I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin. Because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols. And have filled my inheritance with their abominations. O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble, to you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things, in which there is no profit. Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. Therefore, behold, I will make them know this once, I will make them know my power and my might. And they shall know that my name is the Lord. And if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 18, we read, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, 
He, that is Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So is the reading of God's holy and inspired word. The prophet Isaiah reminds us that although the grass of the field withers and the flowers of the field fade away, the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's pause and ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit as we open God's word together this morning. O Lord and our God, you teach us through your servant Moses that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. O God, this is your word through your servant Jeremiah. We pray that according to the promise of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, that it would be profitable for us this morning, that we would, that we would get something out of it, as we are fond of saying. That by your mercy and your grace, you would speak to our hearts through your imperfect servant, by the power of your Holy Spirit. May he be in us and among us, and may he rest upon your word this morning. We pray all these things according to your great promises, which are yes and amen in Jesus our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. I don't know about you, my general observation about this life is that no matter who you are or where you come from, each of us has that one friend, that one friend who no matter what they do, no matter the poor choices or bad decisions they make, that one friend who makes messing up look cool. You know what I mean? Or if you're like me, you actually have three of them. I'm especially blessed by the Lord in this respect. Matthew, Michael, and Eric are, are my friends who, who make messing up look cool. When we were in high school um, in the mid-90s, I realize some of you um, weren't born yet, but, so bear with me. Um, in the mid-90s, they bought a 1991 Chevrolet Corsica that had a red pinstripe around the middle. Uh, now, if you were alive in the 90s, you know that the Chevy Corsica, and my, my apologies to anyone who may still be driving a Chevy Corsica, um, although if you're still driving a Chevy Corsica, uh, kudos to you. You probably have something to teach the world. But the Chevy Corsica was not exactly the, ne the nadir of American automotive manufacturing. It was a very basic car and not one that aged particularly well. So by the time we graduated from high school, this Corsica needed a new owner because it just wasn't doing well anymore. So my friend Matthew, who has the distinction of never having paid more than $500 for a car, offered the owner $200 for this Corsica, and he took it. And then Matthew, Michael, and Eric proceeded to use this very mediocre automobile for two exclusive purposes, hunting and fishing. If they had time to go to the lake, I'm from Minnesota, we're from Minnesota, uh, they just they got, got lucky, caught some fish. They'd throw the bass in the back seat or on the floor and clean them when we got home. It was going to be fine. Uh, if it was fall and they, and they got lucky and shot a, a buck or a doe, they'd field dress it, throw it in the trunk, 
hit the drive-thru at McDonald's, and then hang it, hang it up in the garage at some later time, uh, maybe that day or the next, you know, whatever was convenient. So this very humble car became affectionately known as the hunting and fishing mobile. And it probably would be the hunting and fishing mobile to this day, <laughs> except it kept starting on fire. This is literally true. This happened. There was actually one time where the muffler got so hot, Matthew had to kick it off the tailpipe so it didn't start the gas tank on fire. And then because it was so dry, it was in the fall, it was in danger of starting the ditch on fire. So he actually had to take the Coke that he was drinking on this road trip and pour it on the muffler on the side of the road in order to start prevent the, um, the grass from starting on fire uh, in the ditch. It's, it's completely, completely ridiculous. Needless to say, that car ended up in the junkyard shortly thereafter. I'll tell you that story because somehow those three made that junky old car into something that makes me laugh almost 25 years later. And I, I point out the fact that we all have that, friend, that one friend who makes messing up look cool because what I really want to tell you about this morning is about something even better than that. I want to tell you about uh, this morning about a friend that everyone here has. We all have the same friend this morning who makes keeping his promises look absolutely astonishing, who in keeping his promises leaves us so impressed we're basically speechless. And he does that by making and keeping his promises naming and condemning our sin and calling us to worship him accordingly. The Lord through Jeremiah makes a promise in this, in this text that's so great, it's almost unthinkable if we literally weren't living in the midst of it right now. He says that the return from exile is going to eclipse the exodus as God's premier act in history. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know, the exodus from Egypt, the return to the land from slavery in Egypt, was, I think, arguably the defining event in the history of the Israelites. It defined them as a people. In the exodus, God declared himself to be their God and they his people. After they had been enslaved for 400 years, according to the promise made to Abraham, God called Moses at age 80. I always point that out for those who are more experienced among us, right? God called Moses at age 80 to let the Israelites know that their God, the Lord, had not forgotten them despite the passing of those 400 years. The Lord, whom Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had served, was not the, a figment of the imagination of old men. No, he was real. The stories that their fathers and grandfathers had told were real. This God was real. And through miraculous signs and wonders, uh, wonders, particularly the ten plagues, the Lord judged the gods of Egypt and delivered the people out of the hand of the Pharaoh. This single event and its immediate aftermath is at the heart of the Pentateuch, or the law, or the first five books of the Old Testament. But God says, but God says something bigger is on its way. The glory of God displayed in the Exodus will be displaced by the glory of God displayed in the fishing and hunting of people from the north country and all 
the places where he had driven them. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me. The Exodus was an, 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 an en masse deliverance done directly by God, particularly through the ten plagues. But this operation in the, in the North Country was going to be different. Much different. God's zeal for his people was going to be showcased by his sending for specialists to go get his people from some of the most hard-to-find places. Sadly, those people are at least in part the Judeans who would soon go into exile. I don't know if your eyes passed over the preceding verses of chapter 16, but if they did, you, you would have noted that chap, the preceding verses of chapter 16 are a gruesome indictment of the kingdom of Judah and of Jerusalem. In the first part of chapter 16, the Lord forbids Jeremiah from marrying and having children for this reason, because all the moms and all the dads and all the children born there are going to die. They're going to die of deadly diseases. They're going to die by the sword. They're going to die by famine. Besides this, Lord even forbids Jeremiah from going to funerals and parties. Why? Because your fathers have forsaken me and have gone after other gods and have served and worshipped them. Every one of you follows his stubborn evil will, refusing to listen to me. You know, the Lord through Jeremiah does us a, a tremendous mercy by identifying in, in those words why the first commandment is the first commandment and, and how it relates to us as human beings. We as humans, in truth, worship our way into rebellion against God by serving something or someone other than the Lord, and in worshiping those fake gods, we reveal we are really worshiping ourselves. The Lord through Jeremiah names and condemns such worship of self in verses 17 and 18 when he writes, Nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes, but first I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. Literarily, folks, literarily, brothers and sisters, what we see here is the conflation or the smushing together of people and idol. The dead bodies of idolaters earlier in the chapter are, are now the carcasses of idols at the end. These idols have polluted the Lord's land and have made his inheritance disgusting. <laughs> it's so nice to be able to like preach this text to a bunch of Presbyterians because this is a real hard sell among evangelicals. I just want to put that out there as your evangelist. So what I told the evangelicals in Fort Knox was, this is a crazy text, isn't it? On the one hand, you have this glorious message about what God is going to do to put his glory on display for the world. And on the other, 
you have Judah's self-centered idolatry and rebellion, which is going to result in the most appalling forms of mass death. What do these things have to do with each other? What in the world do these two things have to do with each other? What are Judah and Jerusalem supposed to do with these two things as they listen to this guy, Jeremiah? Well, Jeremiah himself provides the answer. And the answer is, they're supposed to worship, which is what Jeremiah does in verses 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20 are a prayer, and they are a prayer that celebrates the Lord and despises idolatry. O Lord, my strength and stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. Those words really preach to soldiers because they're military words. God is a fortress, as we heard earlier in the service. O Lord, my strength and stronghold, my refuge in in the day of trouble. To you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth. The promise has gone from Israel to all the nations of the world. The fishers and hunters will gather all kinds of people to serve the Lord. And those nations will say, our fathers have inherited nothing but lies. Worthless things in which there is no profit. Can man make for himself gods such are not gods? Therefore, behold, I will make them know. This once I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. You know, having that one friend or three who makes messing up look cool, it's a lot of different things. It's fun. makes for good storytelling. It's even good for reminiscing by yourself sometimes. But, but one thing it is not is awe-inspiring. You cannot build your life around it. It does not give you purpose and meaning, and it cannot guide your living in a difficult world. For those things, you need a different friend. The friend of sinners we read about in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Simon Peter and his brother Andrew and says to them, Follow me! And I will make you fishers of men. And he goes a little further and he sees the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and probably says something similar, and they also follow him. My question for you is, what do you think these four men heard when Jesus called them into his service? Is this like walking up to someone in Starbucks and saying, have you heard about our Lord Jesus Christ? Is that... that the kind of abrupt, uh, disorienting question that, or offer that Jesus made to these men? Cool, this rando guy is making a play on words. Sounds, in- sounds interesting. Let's go check it out. No. These men heard Jeremiah 16. They heard Jesus calling them to join with him in God's mission to go and find the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus was calling them to go hunting and fishing for the people of God, just like the Lord said through Jeremiah. And because they knew the scriptures, because they believed its promises, that 
is why they went and followed him. Brothers and sisters, the church of Jesus Christ, in which we are now worshiping, is built on the foundations of the apostles, like Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and the foundations of the prophets, like Jeremiah. So if you will permit me this metaphor, we are God's hunting and fishing mobile. But unlike some dilapidated and dangerous car destined for the junkyard, we are living stones being built up as a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For as Jesus himself says in the great announcement and the great commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. In other words, Jeremiah 16 was not merely fulfilled by Jesus when he called the apostles. Rather, because the church is built on the, the apostles and the prophets, Jeremiah 16 is being fulfilled. In our very midst, right now, as God calls men and women, boys and girls, to faith in his son. God has called for fishers, <laughs> people like me, people like you, the church to catch others. He has called hunters, people like me, people like you, to hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks, from the hardest to reach Places. This is why I celebrate our cooperative ministry so much. This is a spiritual work. If you think I'm not, if you think God doesn't use your prayers to empower my ministry, think again. I desperately, I rest on the identity of this congregation so often as I'm ministering in faraway places, knowing that you have elders and members of this congregation who love Jesus, who love the scriptures, who love the Reformed faith, and are living it out every day. Because I'm telling you, there ain't, many, there ain't much of that in Fort Knox, Kentucky. I'm just saying. It's happening in the bowels of the army right now. Well, not right now, because I'm not there. But you know what I mean. Okay. And as I was reflecting on this uh, this morning, I also it also occurred to me of, of how real this is in our midst right here in St. Paul. Minnesota, particularly the Minneapolis-St. Paul metro area, is not known for its widespread evangelical character, and certainly not for its reformed character. Now, this is a town that historically has been very religious. There's churches, church buildings everywhere in this city. But if they haven't been converted into apartments or office buildings, the gatherings that often happen there are often not worship at all. And yet here we are. Here is Mission OPC in the midst of one of the most secular cities in our country, worshiping God, and dare I say, by the power of Christ, growing according to God's grace and mercy.
won't he do it? He is doing it. May we stand in awe of God every time we gather for worship, because through us, he is hunting and fishing for his people. In accordance with Jeremiah 16, when we worship God with reverence and awe, may we also worship him by setting aside our idols. In other words, when, we're, when we worship God, let us also cease worshiping ourselves. An old theologian once wrote, perhaps you know who he is, the human heart is a veritable factory of idols. You can't say John Calvin when you're a chaplain, but I can say John Calvin here. It's okay. It's a safe space, right? Now, as modern people, we consider ourselves too sophisticated to genuflect before wood or stone. We don't even really do pictures or images. But we sure put lots of other things before God, don't we? If we're honest with ourselves. If we're honest with ourselves, humanity's favorite idols haven't really changed that much since Jeremiah's day. Whether we're bowing down before a statue or inappropriately courting favor with our boss or telling half-truths or withholding the full truth, we are all in our sinfulness after the same stuff. Status, power, money, and pleasure. What you have to understand about idolatry, beloved, is that idolatry is never about the idol. It's always about the idolater. And to myself as an idolater and to a group of fellow idolaters, I want to share with you a really bizarre quote from Dave Barry. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Dave Barry, but he, uh, there was a calendar, this Dave Barry calendar I saw one time, and it had this, this, <laughs> this silly proverb on it that is, I've always stuck with me. And it goes something like this. If you drop your keys into a river of molten lava... Just let them go, man. They're gone. I don't know. I find that, I find that kind of weird. But I, that really resonates with me because molten lava is literally melted metal. And if you put your metal keys in the, into a river of melted metal, they're going to melt. They're gone. In the same way, when you look, when you put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, when you look to Jesus as your hope for eternal life and peace with God, that calls some old things into question, doesn't it? What good is status with men or people if you're a co-heir with Christ? What good is money? <laughs> what good is money if the meek inherit the entire earth? What good is pleasure if in the kingdom of God we will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but will be like the holy angels? What good is power? earthly human power if we are all in the end powerless against death. It's clear then that, that humanity's favorite idols are only relatively good for the Christian. They are, they are only good insofar as we can use them to serve God and others. They are never good enough to serve in, instead of God or alongside God or to serve at the expense of others. So as we worship, let, let us use it as an opportunity to cleanse our hearts and our lives 
of idols, to repent from the worship of self. I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. We are God's hunting and fishing mobile. Far from being the inane pastime of some silly high schoolers, the Lord is using us as his church to zealously pursue his people in the most difficult to reach places. In response, may our worship always be filled with reverent awe, and may our hearts always be free of idols. Amen. Let us pray. Our great God in heaven, you have done it. We magnify and glorify your name because you have done it and you are doing it even now in our midst. Glory to you, O Christ. We lift you up, O Lord, because you have proven yourself true again from the scriptures. When we truly read the words of your prophets and understand what you have said, our mouths, at least metaphorically, are left hanging open. And it is difficult to grasp the extent of your power and glory. As we, gain, as we gaze upon Christ in this way with, with dimly lit eyes, we pray that you would move our hearts to gratitude and to awe, to worship. And that as we grasp Christ more and more by faith in all of his power and glory, we pray that you would motivate us to cleanse our lives, to cleanse our hearts from idols, to, to take everything that gets in the way of our worship of you and to willingly and joyfully cast it off so that we might just have Christ. We thank you so much, O oh Father, for your enduring mercy not just to your people Israel, but to all the nations of the world, to all the families of the earth. So few of us here are, are Jewish by, by blood or ancestry, but we have been made the circumcision through the circumcision of our hearts by the Spirit of our Lord Jesus. In gratitude and humility, we pray that you would bring us ever more to faithfulness to you. Thank you, O oh God, for hearing our prayer, for calling us to yourself in Christ Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.